It's a good thing, blood. It's a, it's a God thing. It means life. About 7% of you, your weight, is blood. If you're an average adult, you have about 14 to 18 pints of it. You, you, you cannot live without it. Thank God for it. Travels through and to every tissue and organ in your body through thousands of miles of vessels. And all of this flowing is from a pump the size of an apple, the size of a fist, the heart, which pumps uh, over 2,000 gallons of blood through its chambers, think about it, every single day. The body has 25 trillion, wow, not talking about the national deficit here. We'll, we'll get there in a week or two. <clears throat> uh, the body has 25 trillion red blood cells, and they carry oxygen to every part of the body. And you know as well as I do that if blood is cut off to any part of the body, uh, depriving it of oxygen, that part of the body cannot survive. It will die. And then there are white blood cells. What a gift. They defend us, our bodies, from illnesses and infections and all manner of diseases. In one tiny drop of blood at any given time, there are approximately seven to 25,000 white blood cells. And in addition to carrying oxygen and nutrients to all parts of the body, blood uh, also carries off carbon dioxide and other waste products far removed from us for disposal. There was a man named William Harvey in 1628. He discovered for the first time the whole concept of the circulation of blood in our system. And this might be a bit of a surprise to you, but prior to William Harvey's discovery, uh, there wasn't much known about the benefits and blessings of blood at all. But God, in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, 3,500 years ago, told us this about blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. God made that statement. He drew an equivalence between blood and life, between life and blood. And when? Jesus Christ. We've gathered together tonight in his name. When Jesus Christ died, this life-giving, life-sustaining blood drained from his body. And in so doing, it provided forgiveness for all who will believe. Many, however, today question uh, a God who would require blood. Uh, many have uh, come up with uh, bloodless alternatives, bloodless religion. We have it today. The substitution for the blood of the lamb uh, because they find it to be a little grotesque. But the writer of Hebrews, which we have referred to over the month, says the letter of better tells us in one powerful verse of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, that there is something far better 
than bloodlessness. And this is what we will talk about tonight. I read to you Hebrews chapter 9, just one verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now many, as I mentioned, are repulsed by this idea. In fact, some I don't know if you know this, call our faith in Christ's blood as payment for sin. They call it a slaughterhouse religion. Do you know that's how your faith and mine is referred to in, well, an increasing number of circles, a slaughterhouse religion. In fact, they ridicule Christians who believe in a God who is so offended by sin that he would go so far as to require nothing less than blood so as to appease his anger. There was a playwright, perhaps you've heard of him, George Bernard Shaw. and He made a striking statement once with reference to this belief in blood atonement. Uh, he said, it is saturated with the ancient and to me quite infernal superstition of atonement by blood sacrifice, which I believe, he said, Christianity must completely get rid of if it is to survive among thoughtful people. You see, this concept of an angry God so repulsed by sin that he would require blood to appease his anger, this is just unacceptable to thoughtful people. But folks, from the beginning of human history, God who created us has made it quite plain that forgiveness of sin is only possible through the shed blood of an acceptable substitute. When Adam and Eve sinned, you recall the story, they became so desperately and uncomfortably aware of their own nakedness before a holy God that they took steps to deal with it. They sewed for themselves fig leaves together uh, in order to try to cover up for their guilt and shame. And that was the beginning of bloodless religion right there. Thank you, God, but no thank you. We can do it ourselves. But God did not accept their approach. Instead, he clothed them and their guilt with the skin of a slaughtered animal. And so you see, the first use of blood in the Bible was because of human sin. Now, some are repulsed by our faith to the extent that they say it is blood centered. Your faith, this faith, this Christianity, it's just blood-centered. To that we must respond guilty as charged. They are correct. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Who said so? God said so. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Some say no to this, and they have opted for bloodless means of being right with God. They think that forgiveness will simply come in the passage of time or forgiveness, right standing with God, will simply come uh, through better politicians or uh, forgiveness and right standing with God will come from good deeds or you and I just cleaning up our lives in the world. But 
But God said, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why does God, why is he so insistent about this? Why does he insist on the blood? It's because blood means life. And it means the pouring out of blood means death. And the penalty of sin is this very thing. It's death. So in order for sin to be forgiven, somebody has to die. Now, what does this say about God? Does it say that he is bloodthirsty? No. It says that he is holy. And a holy God must respond to unholiness. And so under the old covenant, God responded by providing and requiring animal sacrifice as a covering for sin. It's a foreshadowing of what he later would require of his own son. And as grotesque is this notion of blood atonement, God's own son shedding his blood for one such as you and I, I must tell you it is foreshadowed by a grotesque system of animal sacrifice. It put yourself back a few thousand years. Can you imagine if you were there at the temple in Jerusalem? Think about the sounds of all the sheep and the lambs. They don't go to their demise voluntarily. Absolutely not. And can you imagine the smells Have you been in a place like this where massive numbers of animals have their throats cut? I have to tell you, it was a blood bath. They say there was so much of it that the blood turned the color of the Kidron Valley, made it a red flowing stream. Of course it was grotesque. Josephus, the historian there, records that during Passover, there might have been 250,000 lambs on one occasion slain. Blood was everywhere. In fact, Josephus, he called it a horrifying sight. Yeah, it was. The experience for those there must have been shocking, and that's the point. God permitted it. No, God provided it as a shocking illustration of the cost of sin, and yet that it was provided at all by God as a covering for sin is an overwhelming picture of his grace. But why can't God just say, I'll just let it go? I like you. Forget it. You're forgiven. I'll just let, why can't God just do that? Well, because that would be God overlooking sin. And even though you and I have become accustomed to that, A holy God cannot merely overlook sin, but a holy and gracious God could pay the penalty for it. He did. And doing so cost him quite a bit. You see, without shedding of blood, his own, there is no forgiveness. It cost God quite a bit to pay for the penalty of our sin. And if you are forgiven by God, must remind you as I remind yourself, it is because, myself, it is because his son died. And I want to take the next few moments to describe in some detail uh, just what it cost the very son of God to pay the price for your sin and mine. 
I do not want to offend anybody. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. But I don't want to sugarcoat what he did either. And I have a point in it if you just, if you just bear with me. Let's reflect on the cost to this Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. He was arrested. Let's begin with that. It was at night, and the trials began. In absolute contrast to Jewish laws of jurisprudence, they didn't typically try the accused at night because the sun had gone down. You couldn't examine the evidence when the sun had gone down. There would not be proper illumination to make for a fair trial, but it didn't matter in the case of this Jesus of Nazareth. Let's take him by night anyway. And so they brought him to the place of Caiaphas, then the high priest. And there in the precinct was a soldier, Roman soldier, and he hit this Jesus, right in the face, because he, this Jesus, remained silent when questioned by Caiaphas. And the guards there mocked him. What they did, they put a blindfold over him. They asked him to identify them as they each, one at a time, passed by. Then they spat upon him. Have you ever had that experience? It's demeaning, it's dehumanizing. They spat upon Then they struck him again in the face. By morning, he was bruised and he was dehydrated and he was exhausted from lack of sleep. He was then taken away to be whipped prior to being crucified. So his hands were tied to a post above his head. He was stripped and then he was whipped. The Romans used a short whip with leather straps and small balls of uh, lead primarily were attached to the ends thereof. They used it, and his skin in the process was shredded. And as the blows continued, and they did, they cut deeper into his flesh, getting to the layer of his musculature such that blood, which we spoke about, oozed from capillaries and veins and arteries. In fact, he lost so much blood that his blood pressure would have fallen to such extent he would have, at this point, gone into shock. His thirst, this is a concomitant of shock, his thirst would have been extreme. He would be on the verge of fainting. He was untied, and he was allowed to slump uh, to the stone pavement, soaking in his own blood. The Roman soldiers thought this was all funny. Funny in particular that a Jew such as this wretched one would have the audacity to claim to be king of the Jews. And so they mocked him by putting upon him a robe on his shoulders. They put a stick as a scepter in his hand, and, uh, and then they formed a crown out of branches which were there plentiful. They formed it together, interwoven. Long thorns were part of it. It was pressed into his scalp, much bleeding, 
occurred. And nerves were damaged to such extent that pain probably radiated down his face and his neck. And then the soldiers continued to make fun of him. They hit him in the face. And they took the stick, which was in his hand, and they hit him on his head with it, such that the thorns there would have been driven deeper even into his scalp. And then they tore the robe off his back, and in the process, his coagulated wounds would have been reopened, and he would have been bleeding profusely. And then they took the horizontal part of the cross, called the patibulum, weighing approximately 110 pounds. They put it across his shoulders. He was made to carry it through the streets of Jerusalem in a procession of the condemned. He has lost at this point much blood. The wooden beam was very heavy. He stumbled. He fell. The rough wood of the wooden beam would have cut even deeper into his already lacerated back. He tried to get up, but there was no strength so as to do. He was offered wine mixed with myrrh as an analgesic, a mild pain reliever, but this he refused. He was then thrown on his back down against uh, the vertical part of a wooden cross. A legionnaire, skilled in this whole procedure, felt for the depression uh, in the front of his wrist. And when he did, he drove a heavy, a square iron nail through it, through his wrist and into the wood. And then he moved the legionnaire did to the other side and did the same. The cross would then be lifted up in place and uh, the full weight of this Jesus would have pulled down on his pierced through wrists and his shoulders and his elbows would have been dislocated and his arms would have been stretched beyond normalcy, perhaps even up to six inches or more. Then his left foot was pressed uh, backward against his right foot, and a nail uh, was driven through the arch of each. He sagged down, and more weight was now put on the nails in his wrists. Increasing pressure in the process would have been put on his median nerves, and excruciating pain would have radiated along his fingers and his arms. He would have pushed himself up to get some relief. Excruciating. Off of the cross. That's where we get the word. Latin. Excruciating. He would have lifted himself up for some relief at this uh, uh, point. And his full weight for a while would now have been on the nail uh, through his feet. It would have torn through the nerves between his metatarsal bones uh, in his feet. Uh, he, he was in agony. His muscles began to cramp. And now he was unable even to push himself upward for some relief. 
He was hanging by his arms. His muscles could no longer respond. He inhaled, but he could not exhale. Try it. He struggled to raise himself so as to be able to breathe, and in the process, tissue on his back would have been torn. His back was lacerated, and as he moved up and down against this old rugged cross, uh, tremendous pain would have been hours of pain. Then there would have been an almost final crushing pain. It would have taken place deep in his chest. You see his pericardium. That's the membrane that houses our heart. It would have uh, filled up with fluid. It would have compressed his heart and caused quite a lot of pain. It did. And he died. Death by crucifixion. Cause? Multifactorial. Most common? Asphyxiation. He suffocated. And in the midst of it all, before he died, he uttered these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And I say, what does that mean? You know what you do when you sin, and so do I. It's deliberate. When you sin and what I do, it's a choice. It's not a mystery. What does this mean? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think what we don't know is just how costly it is to forgive that sin. I don't think we get it. And there's something else quite tragic that I think we don't know. This is the saddest, most tragic of all. I don't think we fully realize that what Jesus went through is more than adequate to pay the penalty for everybody's sin ever committed for all time. There was a person who did not know this. I want you to tell you about him. His name is Albert Spear. There's a picture of him with a more familiar person, Adolf Hitler. Albert Speer rose to great positions of power and influence in Hitler's Germany. And after the fall of the Third Reich, a Speer was brought to trial at Nuremberg. You've heard of the Nuremberg trials. And what distinguished him from the others is that he was the only one of Hitler's staff during these trials, who admitted his guilt. And as a result, he was incarcerated for 20 years in Spandau prison. Once he was interviewed about a book he had written. And he was asked by the interviewer, you have said the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? And Speer responded, I served a sentence of 20 years. And I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime. And I can't get rid of it. 
This new book is part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. And the interviewer said, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? And Spear uh, reflectively shook his head and said, I don't think it will ever be possible. Albert Speer accepted full responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought cleansing and relief from guilt and yet died never having found it. That is a great tragedy. It's tragic to refuse the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ as sufficient satisfaction for the guilt of our sin. His, yours, mine. You cannot find relief, peace, cleansing, pardon, in bloodless religions or efforts. You can only find it by accepting the complete sufficiency of the voluntary and full suffering and death in your place of the Lord Jesus. You see, without the shedding of blood, one verse tells us this, there is no forgiveness. Do you know that the number one reason blood donors say they give blood is because they want to help others? Jesus Christ is the ultimate blood donor. I close with this question. Have you accepted him as your personal savior from the penalty of your personal sin? If the answer is yes, please rejoice. Be thankful. Get over yourself. Don't add to the excruciating nature of what he went through as if it wasn't enough. Head up. Shoulders back, an upward gaze to now a loving Heavenly Father who sees you as an adopted, forgiven one. You and I do not impress him with this constant guilt that renders us rather useless to the kingdom. It's tragic to minimize the totality of what the suffering one has suffered for ones such as you and I. If you have... Cast yourself upon the one who has been cast on a cross for you in your place. If you have said, forgive me, come into my life, suffering Savior. You who rose up from it all, inhabit me and let me inhabit the world with your praises. If you have accepted him, head up, shoulders back. Rejoice in the Lord always. If you have not, why not tonight? Why not tonight? Why not tonight? Why not accept the Lord Jesus tonight? What can wash away your sin? Tell me. That's the answer.
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? <clears throat> That's why, you see, we say how precious is the flow. We don't take lightly what he went through. Because it made us white as snow. No other fount. We know nothing. Why not take the blood of Jesus tonight? As the cleansing agent for your sin. Why not leave this place? Head up, shoulders back, free and forgiven. Why die for your own sin like Albert Speer apparently did? Why not say, thank you, oh God. You died for my sin. Why not tonight? <clears throat> what can wash away my sin? Nothing. And what? It's the same answer. Sing it. Oh, precious, the flow. Here's what it did. No options. No other. So, Lord Jesus, we bow in adoration and gratitude, overwhelmed by your holiness, overwhelmed by your mercy. Oh, God, a sinner in this place is qualified for forgiveness. Oh, God, let there be not one. It's too serious. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. Let there be not one who passes out of this life into the next forever condemned and separated. Oh, God, we don't just sing. We believe nothing but your blood has been provided for the forgiveness of sins. Oh God, let there be not one person who leaves here tonight tragically rejecting or minimizing the completeness and totality and excruciating nature of what you've done that we could be free and forgiven forever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.